0: the History
1: of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary.
0: Hello, dress listeners. So for the past five seasons and almost five years, April and I have been bringing you a wide range of stories exploring and celebrating the significance of clothing from throughout history and around the world. We are currently
1: on hiatus, researching a way for a brand new season of Dressed, Season six will launch on January 17th, 2023. And until then, we want to share with you some of our favorite dressed classic episodes from the archive of almost
0: 400 past episodes. Enjoy. So the Academy Awards dates back all the way to the 1920s, but the first films were being made as far back as the 1890s. So the movies being produced for over 120 years. You know, I think we should probably preface this episode by saying this is only intended as an overview of a very huge topic, like ginormous topic. Yes. I mean, it's so big that we've chosen to focus almost entirely on the relationship between fashion as it relates to American Hollywood films. And for the most part, I mean, there will be a few exceptions. And even by narrowing our discussion, there are still so many fascinating stories and players involved with this subject that it is impossible to cover them all in one episode. And that is why we are bringing you two. Yes, and as you said, Cass,
1: this is a huge topic, and there are many different angles which we could look at um, the intersections of fashion and film historically. Of course, the most obvious one is the depiction of fashion in film, and that is fashionable clothing as costume worn by characters in support of the visual narrative, you know, of any given plot. And this fashionable clothing can be worn both in contemporary films, those intended to be set within the time in which their audience are living now, currently, when they're viewing them, and also period films, films set in the past. So clothing and fashionable clothing at that is one of the most vital production elements in selling any given period in history. It is very central to the quote-unquote look of a specific time and place.
0: And we have to give many a costume designer props for their historical accuracy over the years. But April, I think you would agree that present-day fashion is a pretty powerful force, and even the best designers have been guilty of implementing, consciously or not, contemporary beauty and fashion aesthetics into their, you know, period costumes. So, if you look at any number of the westerns from the 1960s for instance, you know, they're set in the late 19th century, but I can't even tell you how many leading ladies in these films are costumed with bouffant hairstyles and cat <laughs> eyeliner. <laughs> so good. You know, not to mention that you know, these electric colors of their bustle gowns. So fashion and film, and we're using the term film today because well, the majority of the movies we're talking about were filmed on film. <laughs> so fashion and film have been inextricably linked since the earliest days of cinema.
1: The first motion picture films were produced at the end of the 19th century. and By the first decade of the 20th, Film production had fast evolved into a mass entertainment industry. Hollywood, obviously, as we all know, in Los Angeles, California, was its epicenter and the home to over 70 studios um, and counting by 1914. And prior to the advent of film, Theater was a hugely popular form of spectator entertainment, and it was thanks to this medium that female audiences had long been accustomed to viewing their favorite theater actresses and the clothes they wore as the latest word in chic. And actresses wore high fashion on and off stage and were heralded as fashion icons in newspapers and fashion magazines. And film would prove no different with its bevy of silver screen starlets who would capture the admiration of the millions of women audience-goers all across the country.
0: So, with the film industry fast on the rise in the early 20th century, we see the debut of the first film fan magazines, such as PhotoPlay and Motion Picture Magazine, and both of these magazines presented actresses as fashion trendsetters. And if you want to go down a rabbit hole, you can go to MediaHistoryProject.org forward slash fan magazines, because they have a huge archive of keyword searchable magazines on there. So, have a blast. Yeah. So... It's <laughs> so fun. But it will t- it will take up an entire afternoon. Photoplay even had a regular column dedicated to fashion, which often featured full-body photographs of actresses so as to best display their entire gowns. Printed in black and white, though, these photographs were accompanied by text that really detailed the gown's color and fabric for the inquiring reader. Actress Norma Talmadge was featured so often in the fashion
1: section of Photoplay that she was even named fashion editor for a short time in 1920. By emphasizing the dress and appearance of these early film stars, these magazines played a pivotal role in establishing film actresses as fashion icons. But you may be wondering, who was dressing them today. We're all accustomed to the important role of the costume designer and the costume department in film and television production. You know, obviously, what would miss marvelous Mrs. Mazel be without Donna Zakowska and her talented team of assistants, cutters, fitters, tailors, shoppers, dyers, agers. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, the there, there are a
1: lot of people helping out on those productions. Let's just say that. Oh,
0: yeah. But actually, in the earliest days of cinema, there was no such thing as a costume designer and thus no costume department dedicating to producing costumes for a specific movie. So according to costume designer and historian Deborah Landis, in her book Dressed, A Century of Hollywood Costume Design, she's actually written quite extensively on the history of Hollywood design. So you're going to hear her name come up quite a bit. So according to Deborah, producer. Adolf Zucker and director D.W. Griffith were among the first to recognize the importance of and need for the professional costume designer. And this was in the 1910s. But we still did not see a standardization of the costume designer and department until the 1920s. So prior to this, actors and actresses were largely expected to provide their own wardrobes for contemporary films, with many, I mean those who could actually afford it, I suppose... Many of these people work directly with their favorite fashion designers to create their specific on-screen looks. For
1: instance, Paul Paré, as you all know, who we adore and love, he designed the period costumes for acclaimed actress Sarah Bernhardt in the 1912 French film The Loves of Queen Elizabeth. It does not surprise us at all that Poiret was among the very first fashion designers to embrace the new medium of film as a way to extend his influence and advertise his brand, although he would never admit it, of course, mm. being Poiré. <laughs> um, neither would his contemporary lady, Lucille Duff Gordon, who designed the gowns for the leading ladies for over 20 films between 1914 and 1922, starting with the perils of Pauline, starring Pearl White. I love that. Film. Um, and in April 1918, Vogue dedicated a two page spread to Lucille's designs for actress Clara Campbell Young and the 1918 film The Reason Why, which was written by Lucille's sister,
0: the famed novelist turned screenwriter Eleanor Glynn. Thanks to these well-known collaborations, I mean, is it any wonder that Motion Picture Magazine declared that, quote, motion picture actresses wear the latest modes, and they declared this in its September 1914 issue. And the article goes on to say that, quote, women revel in the style of a gown much better in the picture show than she can in the pages of some fashion journal. But this brings up a very interesting point, April, because we all know how quickly fashion can change. And what was in fashion when you were designing and then shooting a film? Well, it might have changed by the time the film was released six months to a year later. Case in point? Lucille's designs for Clara and the reason why might have been presented by Vogue as the latest fashions in 1918, but I know at least one of those designs came straight from her 1917 collections.
1: Claire West, one of the very first screen-credited costume designers, addressed this very issue in an interview with Women's Wear Daily in December 1919. According to her, fashionable film costumes were produced thanks to Fashion forecasting which is fascinating she goes on to say quote it is particularly difficult to dress characters for the screen when one considers that the clothes not only must be up to date but they must be several months ahead of style and you know by designing for the future Claire and other costume designers of this time really considered themselves both costume and fashion designers
0: Case in point, one month prior, Women's Wear Daily had interviewed West about the influence of Hollywood on fashion in an article titled Motion Pictures to Create New Fashion Center. And at the time, West was under a seven-year contract with the picture and distribution company Lasky Famous Players Company, soon to be known as a name some of you may recognize, Paramount Pictures. Quote, as for the role which motion pictures plays in fashion, reads the article, in Miss West's opinion, there is no limit. West oversaw the designing and making of costumes for the entire film company. So this is no small order. And she did this in a three-story building devoted entirely to costume production.
1: Just to give you an idea of the size of this costume department, West's full-time team consisted of 65 women, including five flower makers, 10 designers, numerous seamstresses, two tailors, a staff of hairdressers, and a number of assistants. Quote, in this way, said West, we have the ideal conditions under which fashions should be created. And created is the key word here because they were not buying, you know, off-the-rack clothing cast, you know, for both period and contemporary films, the majority of the clothes seen on the stars in Hollywood films were produced made-to-measure for them in-house.
0: Yeah, and by the end of the 1920s, the costume department expanded exponentially to become what Landis calls small factories, employing hundreds of people. The role of the costume designer really developed during this period in tandem with the Hollywood studio system, becoming an indispensable part of these movie-making machines that would only continue to flourish throughout the 1920s. By the end of the decade, all of the big studios had full-time costume departments.
1: It is perhaps not surprising that films traded on fashion as a way to communicate with and appeal to women audience members, but Cass, I think both you and I were surprised to learn just how much the idea of fashion designing, designing costumes to become fashion, played into the design process of some of these early Hollywood costume designers, and we're going to hear more about that right after a brief sponsor break.
0: Welcome back. So this desire to connect film costume and fashion is perhaps best understood within the context of the American fashion industry at this time, which we've discussed on past episodes. The American fashion industry at this time was based almost entirely on Parisian haute couture. So in the 1920s, as it had been for well over a century, the American clothing industry from ready-made to -to made-to-order was based on Parisian, not-American design. It's what Elizabeth Haas referred to as the French legend, quote, "...all beautiful clothes are made in the houses of the French couturiers, and all women want those clothes." The result of the perpetuation of the so-called French legend by American manufacturers and department stores, but also the country's leading fashion magazines and tastemakers, well, it relegated the American designer to a place of anonymity, and, you know, their original contributions to fashion were, well, they were deemed unworthy of recognition.
1: But hope was not lost. The popularity and visibility of American films and thus American design costumes presented a promising opportunity to costume designers to upend the French, you know, vice grip on American tastes by catering to the public with new original designs that they saw in films. And in 1923, Women's Wear Daily reported, quote, Miss West found Paris keeping a close eye on what she and other designers were doing And um, they, they quote the designer as saying, quote, They, meaning Paris, feel that we have our finger directly on the pulse of the American feminine public. They know that because films are not screened until six months after they are made, we must be well in advance of the current styles.
0: And she goes on to say that, quote, "...Americans can hardly realize the extent American films play in determining the trends of fashion. A year ago, Paris decreed long skirts, and while we felt the American public did not wish them, we would not accept them. So in Adam's Rib, which is a film she designed, you will find that we retain short skirts. And now in Paris, I find that the short skirt has definitely come back." End quote. Costume designers also collectively challenged Parisian fashions with the so-called Hollywood line, which was characterized by garments cut to emphasize the curves of a woman's body these body-hugging, often floor-length
1: dresses were in direct contrast with the low-waisted, box-like fashions of the later half of the 1920s. For example, uh, you could watch um, both Clara Bow in the 1927 film The It Girl and Joan Crawford in the 1928 film Our Dancing Daughters. Oh, and by the way, both of these films are available in full on YouTube, so you can just pop over to YouTube and watch them. But despite Hollywood's commitment to these body-conscious styles, it was Paris who staked a, the claim of returning the slim-fit dress to fashion in 1929, after which PhotoPlay magazine rushed to defend Hollywood as its originator. In an article entitled, Hollywood Leads Paris in Fashion, the magazine interviewed costume designer Howard Greer for proof that the Hollywood line had pervaded films long before Paris decided that it was their latest fashion.
0: And he did so begrudgingly, I might add, because he was personally not a fan, as we will see in this quote, where he says, For years, our worst-dressed picture girls have been wearing those abominably fitted dresses, says Greer. They were conceived by the producers who thought that sex was an essential on the screen, and rightly too, I suppose. So they put their girls in clothes that would show off every line of the figure, and they kept on doing it, no matter what fashion said. Well, now Paris has come to it with modification, I definitely believe that Paris has been influenced by Hollywood. So regardless of who originated it, the curves of the feminine figure would become the key ingredient in defining Hollywood glamour in the ensuing decades and well into this very day, actually, where bias-cut gowns remain a staple of the red carpet. They sure are. So basically, Hollywood costume designers went a long way
1: in putting America on the fashion map. And Cass, I'm really glad that you mentioned Howard Greer, because Greer was a super successful costume designer and also fashion designer. And I mean the latter in the most traditional sense of the term because he began his fashion career working for none other than Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon, who we just mentioned earlier, in her New York and Chicago branches of her couture house before he went on to serve in World War I. And it was only after working in Paris after the war for both Paul Paré and Edward Molyneux that Greer returned to America, where he took a job as a full time costume designer for Paramount in 1923. Then, in 1927, he opened his own custom fashion salon. And before retiring in the 1960s, Greer dressed Hollywood's leading stars both on and off screen, including the legendary Mary Pickford, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Ginger Rogers, Rita Hayworth, (laughs) and Katherine Hepburn. All of them being legends, I should say.
0: (laughs) Indeed, many costume designers became synonymous with fashion during Hollywood's golden age, precisely because of these close relationships dressing Hollywood's leading ladies. Um, You know, succeeding Greer in 1928 as head designer at Paramount was another renowned fashion-turned-costume designer, Travis Banton. Like Greer, Banton served in World War I and worked as a designer for Lucille before joining Greer at Paramount in the mid-1920s. And during his illustrious career, Banton is known for adding the glitz, the glamour, the sparkle that we all know and love to Hollywood, thanks to his many designs for stars that included Claudette Colbert, Mae West, Marlene Dietrich, and Anna Mae Wong. And I just actually want to take a moment and acknowledge the breadth of Banton's work because he has over 259 credits on IMDb. Oh, my God. I mean, 259 credits in a career spanning only 26 years. So that's an average of almost 10 films a year. Wow. So for reference, I've worked in the industry for 12 years and I have 22 credits. (laughs) Um. Where I, but you know, essentially I work as an independent contractor for each project I sign on to. Banton and his contemporaries, however, were costume designers working within the Hollywood studio system.
1: Which means that Banton, like any technician, director, producer, or actor, signed a contract that bound them exclusively to a studio for a certain number of years. And in this way, the major studios in Hollywood controlled every single aspect of the filmmaking process, from uh, production to distribution to exhibition. And they even owned or controlled the theaters in which the films were shown. And, And this was something that was known as vertical integration in Hollywood. So they exerted a profound amount of influence and control over their leading gents and ladies whose images and personas were carefully crafted and maintained by the studio itself. So high fashion and oak glamour were were really essential ingredients in the making of any star, and this was all being pumped out of the studios.
0: Right, and so, we, you know, the moniker, the Golden Age of Hollywood, well, it's often used to refer to this period when studios were at the height of their power influence, and this period is bracketed from 1928 when we start to see the first films with sound all the way to the 1960s when the studio system dissolves. And we're going to learn more about that in part two of this series. That the Golden
1: Age encompasses the 1930s, despite the Great Depression, speaks to the mesmerizing aura, the glamour, the fantasy that only continued to intoxicate millions of viewers in the desperate need of escape during these really hard times. And when we return from a brief sponsor break, we will learn all about one of the most influential costume and fashion designers of this Hollywood Golden Age.
0: Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, and the dresses that you dream of once in a lullaby. I'm, of course, singing.
1: (laughs) You will never, ever, ever hear me sing on dress because I cannot sing because I'm tone deaf. So I leave that all to
0: Cass. (laughs) I am... Trying to sing, I should say, over the rainbow, not even remotely an imitation of the inimitable Judy Garland in her starring role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. The costume designer for that film? Gilbert Adrian. And there's a beautiful new book out entitled Adrian, A Lifetime of Movie Glamour, Art, and High Fashion, which we highly suggest you check out.
1: And Adrian attended Parsons in both New York and Paris before landing his first job as a costume designer for the Irving Berlin Review in New York, which is clearly not a bad first gig, right? Um, And it was in New York that he made the acquaintance of the set and costume designer, Natasha Rambova, who was then the wife of Rudolph Valentino, of course, one of the biggest male stars of that era. And that's how Adrian got his first big break in designing costumes for the Valentino's 1924 film the Hooded Falcon. Four years later, in 1928, Adrian signed a contract with MGM Studios where he would serve as head designer for the next 13 years, designing some of the most famous and iconic costumes in the history of cinema.
0: Oh, I don't know, April. Our listeners might have seen Greta Garbo in all her sequined and gilded glory as Mata Hari in the 1931 film of the same name.
1: Or what about Norma Shearer in the 1938 version Marie Antoinette? Adrian and his team reportedly for this film designed, get this, 4000 costumes.
0: Oh, it's insane.
1: Yeah, and and this, the movie is amazing, and it's, it's worth watching just for the costumes alone, and one of the costumes we actually have um, in our collection at the Museum at FIT, and it was recently on view in the exhibition Paris Capital of Fashion, and it is a supremely gorgeous black robe à la Française with gold sequin and embroidery embellishment all over it. I mean, It's incredible. Um, And this is not the only Adrian film costume that we have in the collection. We also have um, gowns worn by Greta Garbo in the film um, Queen Christina. Also uh, some things that she wore in Camille and Anna Karenina. So we have quite a few of his, his film costumes in our collection.
0: And I'm super bummed because when I came to see the exhibit, I could not view that Adrian dress because the lights weren't working. Oh, no. (laughs) So sorry. It's okay. There is one Adrian costume, of course, that will always stand out above all the rest, and that is Dorothy's blue and white gingham pinafore and those ruby red sequin slippers from The Wizard of Oz. There's actually five pairs of those iconic shoes that are known to survive today, including one in the collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of America. American history. In 2015, April, one extant version of Dorothy's iconic dress was sold at auction to an anonymous bidder for $1.5 million. Oh my (laughs) God.
1: So as profound of an influence on film as Adrian had, his impact on fashion is equally significant. In fact, Adrian is considered one of the great American fashion designers of the 20th century, right alongside greats like Claire McCardell and Elizabeth Hawes, who really put the American fashion scene on the international radar starting in the 1930s, um, during a time when it was more or less like fashion was still dominated by what was going on in Paris couture.
0: Yes, it was in the 1930s that the American fashion movement started to emerge from, you know, underneath the shadows of Paris. So the fashion group, which is actually an organization that still exists today, was founded in 1930 with the belief that, quote, fashion needed a forum, a stage, and a force to express and enhance a widening interest in clothes, especially American clothes. Among the group's earliest and best-known members were Edna Woolman Chase, then editor-in-chief in Vogue, and Dorothy Shaver, vice president and future president of Lord & Taylor. Thanks to these ladies and others' pioneering efforts, we really start to see American designers taking pride of place in department stores and fashion magazines throughout the decade.
1: By 1934, Adrian was such a respected authority on fashion that he was asked by Vogue to pen an article, which is entitled, quote, Do American Women Want American Clothes?, in which he expounded upon his design process, and he says, the movies have popularized American design as nothing else could do. In New York, on a first night, in one motion picture theater alone— five or 6,000 see a new gown launched. For purely mechanical reasons, we have to launch rather than merely reflect fashion. Aside from the fact that I would get no pleasure from copying French clothes, I cannot afford to do it. A month after a French gown is shown in New York or published in a magazine, the copies begin to flood the land, and our pictures are not released until three or four months after they are started. If I took a dress already popular and copied it in a picture, ladies in the audience might already be wearing copies
0: of it, and the whole film would appear to them passe. (laughs) <laughs> Case in point is actually one of Adrienne's most famous and influential creations, which was this white organdy evening gown worn by Joan Crawford in the 1932 film Letty Linton. Vogue wrote about this dress in 1933, quote, Every little girl all over the country, within two weeks of the release of Joan Crawford's picture, felt she would die if she couldn't have a dress like that, with the result that the country was flooded with little Joan Crawford's. You remember this dress. It has fantastic shoulder width given by a big flaring ruching of organdy over each shoulder. It was certainly never seen before the Crawford picture. Score one for Hollywood. These sleeves are one of the fashions which it is contended Hollywood originated.
1: Aside from its dramatic oversized sleeves, which purportedly set a trend in fashion to be seen throughout that decade, the dress proves a prime example of costume directly impacting fashion, and that is because copies of this dress were actually marketed and sold. When Bernard Waldman created his Modern Merchandising Bureau in 1930, he bridged the gap that had inevitably existed in film between screen costume and the admiring public. And what became known as a marketing tie ins, the company organized the manufacture of costume designs from a film and then arranged so they were sold in tandem with the film's actual
0: release. So you could you could
1: see it (laughs) and then go buy it the next day. Exactly.
0: Um, Working with every major movie studio except Warner Brothers, the Modern Merchandising Bureau sold the latest Hollywood modes in their nationwide cinema shops. And they did so to an eager public, giving women the opportunity to now literally emulate in a mass marketed version, of course, their favorite stars. And at the time, Macy's claimed that they sold 500,000 copies of the quote-unquote Letty Linton dress (laughs) in their cinema shop. And this is a myth so often repeated um, that it's afforded the dress this almost legendary status— However, for his article, The Carol Lombard and Macy's Window, scholar Charles Eckert conducted extensive research into this very subject, but he found no substantial evidence to support Macy's claim. (laughs)
1: Uh, I love a little fashion history myth busting. Right. (laughs) Um, That being said, uh, the Letty Linton dress was still being talked about three years after the release of the film when an American fashion buyer returned from Paris in 1935 and recounted for the Saturday Evening Post, quote, That robe swept Paris not only after it had appeared in the film, but after it had been sold in the New York shops. And when I took ship for America toward the end of 1934, all the cheap little shops which have sprung up like weeds in the Champs-Élysées were gainfully displaying it with no mention, of course, of its Pacific coast origin which is which is really fascinating cast because apparently this exchange between America and France and all the copying did on occasion go in the reverse that the French <laughs> were copying the Americans so this dress um might be one of the most famous costume designs to be sold as fashion during the 1930s, but it was one of only hundreds of film costumes sold across the United States, either by um, the modern merchandising bureau or their many competitors which emerged, of course, to cash in on this very successful operation.
0: Right, and Vogue publisher Condé Nast had actually a similar idea in mind when he created the Hollywood Pattern Company, and he did that in 1932. And this business sold patterns modeled after Hollywood Designs. And this company was so successful that it actually inspired Nast to create a magazine entitled Glamour of Hollywood in 1939. And an ad for the new magazine read, Recognizing Hollywood's importance as a disseminator of fashion, beauty, and charm— Glamour has been created to interpret that fashion, beauty, and charm in terms of the average woman's daily needs. And if you haven't already guessed it, Dress Listeners, this magazine still survives today, albeit now exclusively online as Glamour. hmm
1: So, in addition to the marketing of film-specific garments and the continued promotion of Hollywood as a fashion arbiter by fan and later Fashion magazines, numerous films of the 1930s were also set in or revolve around the world of fashion. In her article, Powder Puff Promotion, author Charlotte Herzog proposes that the careful editing and presentation of an extended fashion show within the actual film was used as a vehicle of advertisement to promote consumerism. And they did so by exploiting, as she writes, quote, the way women as the primary audience see themselves in order to subtly suggest the sale of clothes to them. And she applies her theory to films from the 1920s all the way into the 1950s with a really strong focus on the films of the 1930s when this marketability of Hollywood designs was at its all time high.
0: And these include films, which you should all try to get your hands on, um, and clips of which are on YouTube because they're fabulous. But so we have Fashions of 1934 from 1934. And those costumes. Imagine that. I know. (laughs) Costumes were designed by Ori Kelly. You have the 1935 flick Roberta with costumes by Bernard Newman. And you have the 1939 film The Women with costumes by Adrian. I actually think the women's streaming either on Amazon or Netflix, and I highly suggest watching that. So the impact of these filmed fashion shows was further solidified by the fact that with many of these films, such as Roberta, women were aware that they could purchase a replica of some of the gowns in their local shops. And I really wish we had more time to discuss the work of Ori Kelly and Bernard Newman, April. Newman was a student of the Trap School of Fashion in New York. And as you know, got his start in fashion as one of the designers at Bergdorf Goodman's Custom Salon before turning to costume design in 1933.
1: Yeah, and we actually have all the sketches from um, the Bergdorf Goodman custom salon, um, but they really don't start until the 1950s. So, and and what we in our holdings, um, so uh, we don't have all of them. I should say we have uh, many, many of them because I think the Brooklyn Museum has some as well, and also I think uh, the Costume Institute has some. So. Newman's sketches may be at one of those other institutions, but we don't have any of his because ours don't really start until the 50s except for some hats. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but the film that you mentioned earlier, cast The Women, the fashion show that was featured in that movie is particularly significant in that even though though the film itself was shot in black and white, the 10-minute long Adrian-designed fashion extravaganza that's, like, in the middle of the film was presented in full color thanks (laughs) to this new innovation at the time called Technicolor. And according to costume film scholar Christopher Laverty in his book, Fashion and Film, this scene was actually forced upon the director, George Cukor, by the studio. He says, quote, it is not difficult to see why Cukor might object he wrote Laverty, the show serves no narrative purpose whatsoever. Its only place is to sell Adrian. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so it's like one, like 10 minute long advertisement for Adrian in the middle of this movie. Right. So, um, so synonymous did Adrian become within the fashion world itself that he left MGM in 1941 to open his own fashion line called Adrian Limited
0: in Beverly Hills. In perhaps no other period in history have fashion and film been more intimately intertwined than in the 1930s. Book ended by the Great Depression and the start of World War II, that period is a golden age of cinema and a golden age of fashion and film. Impeccably dressed actresses such as Marlena Dietrich, Joan Crawford, Mae West, just to name a few, were magnetic and mesmerizing forces in both fashion and film, as were the legion of costume designers that dressed them. Adrian, Howard Greer, Travis Banton are just three of the era's many prolific designers who would come to define the glitz, the glamour, the magic of both fashion and film in the 1930s and the ensuing decades to come.
1: And with that, we conclude our very first episode of Season Three, Dress. Um, part one of our two-part episode on fashion and Hollywood films. So, there will be another episode coming next week because, as I'm sure you've noticed, we've only made it to the 1930s. We, we warned you guys, this is an <laughs> enormous topic. There are actually literally entire courses taught just on this subject. Exactly.
0: And I took that course, which is partly where the inspiration from this episode came
1: Good Huge topic. It was never offered when I was in school, well, at least when I was in grad school.
0: Yes, Dr. Lourdes Font uh, taught it and therefore will go down in history as one of my favorite fashion courses ever, but I digress. Well, our listeners, you're just going to have to join us next week for part two, where we continue to explore the relationship between fashion and film as it evolves throughout the 20th and into the 21st centuries until then you may consider the influence of film on your fashions and vice versa next time you get dressed and remember we love hearing from you so please write to us at trust at iheartmedia.com or you can also dm us on instagram at dress underscore podcast where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes
1: and as always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps make the show possible each and every week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.